Good morning, everybody. My name's uh, Brayden. If you don't know me, I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch, and uh, I have the privilege of going through a fairly large chunk of this part of Acts uh, today. I want to say, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the foyer kind of area out the back. Please grab one, because we're going to be trying to get through as much of this narrative as possible this morning. Uh, And there are also some outlines at the back if you'd like to follow that along or write notes and stuff down. Feel free to do that. Uh, If you're just kind of jumping in with us today, we have started going through the last few chapters of the book of Acts, where we're basically tracking Paul's kind of journey from Jerusalem and then eventually uh, to Rome. At this point, he's in Jerusalem, he got there, uh, well done, but then he was attacked and he was taken into Roman custody basically for his own protection. Uh, And then he gives a speech, and that ends in a huge uproar, and uh, uh, that's basically where we find ourselves in the story today. Now, you guys were talking to each other before, sharing times you shared maybe your testimony of the gospel with someone during Josh's family time. When I was working full-time in the coffee industry, uh, the company I worked for, we used to uh, run stalls at big coffee expos, Uh, and so we would, one particular week, we were running one in uh, Sydney, at the Sydney Coffee Expo, and, and I love these, right? They were really good. We'd work really long days, but our boss would always take us out for dinner every night of the week to some fancy place in the city or whatever. So, so they were great. He'd shout, which is good. Uh, this one particular night, I remember it very vividly, we were in Marrickville, which is not in the city, but anyway, we are in Marrickville, and um, we're at a pizza place. It's really good. If you want to know where it is, I'll tell you after. Um, and, and for some reason, there's probably like seven or so staff members there, and for some reason, we get on the topic of faith and Christianity, uh, and we're chatting, and I don't remember a whole lot about the conversation except how it ended. Uh, and we were literally discussing the word faith, what does that mean? And it was basically at this point just between me and, and, and another colleague. And um, I was trying to explain to him, well, you know, faith is not just something, you know, that you, you aimlessly and you're blind, is not blind faith. And he was trying to convince me that I was brainwashed and that I was really silly for believing everything. And, and it kind of started getting quite heated, and basically we're just on a random street in Marrickville yelling at each other. That's how, that's how it ended. Full-blown yelling, and uh, the next day there was a Facebook post made about me, not, not with my name, but it was pretty obvious, uh, and some co- colourful language used to pour scorn on my intellect. That's how my conversation entered, ended. Uh, and as I reflect on that conversation over the years after, since, and I think, oh man, why was, why was he so angry at me? Why was he so mad? And maybe you're sitting there going, it's obvious, you were yelling at him. Um, <laughs> but you're right, it is quite obvious. I, I, it was, my manner was, was not good. No empathy, no grace, no patience, no kindness. We were just yelling. In the passage today, Paul is being accused. He's being accused by the Jewish leadership. He's facing opposition. And the Roman commander... The guy that's holding him, he wants to get, the bottom, get to the bottom of why Paul is being accused. Why do the Jews hate this guy so much? What's he on trial for? And that question, what is Paul being accused of, is what shapes this whole section of the narrative for, the next, for these two, three chapters. What's Paul really being accused of? So as we come to God's Word today, what I want us to explore is, if you're going to be accused concerning your faith, What should it be for? Why are you on trial? What charge should be against your name? And I want to propose to all of us that this should be the charge, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That should be the charge against our names. Not some yelling match, 
but Jesus being alive. This is kind of the big takeaway idea for, for us this morning. We ought to be people of innocence who don't stop holding out the resurrection. We ought to be people of innocence who don't stop holding out the risen Jesus. I have three points, just kind of track the narrative. First one is the question is asked and the answer is suggested. The second one is Paul seems to be innocent. And the third one, Paul is on trial because of the risen Jesus. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into that first point. We join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you so much that that means we can even be here together today uh, to worship him. Pray, Father, as we come to your word that our hearts might be more stirred about the resurrection, that we might be emboldened because of it and have a desire to share it. And you might help me to speak faithfully from your word that my words might fall and yours might come forth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll start from where the re- we had the readings, chapter 22, verse 30, for our first point. We read that the, the, this commander, he wants to know exactly why Paul is being accused by the Jews. That's our question. He wants to get to the bottom of it. So what does he do? He calls in all the Jewish leadership, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and then he brings Paul right in front of all of these people. The scene's set. Paul in front of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. I feel like it's one of those really tense moments where maybe there's like a wide shot kind of circling around the little guy in front of all these, uh, these leaders in Jerusalem. There's silence. And then, and then 23 verse 1, Paul looks straight at them. I kind of love that bit, right? Imagine if all these high officials there and you're just on your own having to defend yourself, but he doesn't look at his feet, he doesn't cover his face, he looks straight at them all. And then he says this, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Put it this way, I've been doing what God has told me to do. I have been doing what God has told me to do. And what was that? Go to the Gentiles. Go to the non-Jewish people with the good news that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. That's what God told Paul to do, and that's what he's been doing. Now, it should actually be no surprise that the high priest, Ananias, reacts the way that he does. In chapter 22, verses 21 and 22, What Paul has just said is actually the exact reason that the crowds got angry back then. So the high priest says, strike him on the mouth. But then Paul lets him have it. It's quite shocking. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. He's calling the high priest a hypocrite, a lawbreaker, similar to what Jesus called the Jewish leadership, whitewashed tombs. But this is a big thing, big thing to say to the high priest when you're on your own in front of all the Jewish leadership there. And the rest of the people there, they recognize that. How dare you insult God's high priest? How dare you? And then Paul's response is quite strange. Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Wait, is Paul, is Paul backflipping? Is he apologizing? Or is he being a bit facetious? Is he being sarcastic? I actually, I actually tend to think he's actually been a little bit cheeky here with the Jewish leadership. 
For one, I think he probably would know that that is the high priest, even just from the very fact that this guy has just been the one to give the order to smack him. He's obviously, at the very least, a leader amongst them. If not, it's obvious that he's the high priest. But then Paul's quote of the Old Testament makes a bit more sense if he's actually been a bit cheeky. He's saying, I didn't recognize him because his actions are not one befitting the ruler of God's people. He doesn't act like a ruler of God's people, so he mustn't be. That's what Paul is saying. And I think that's actually confirmed because Paul doesn't kind of pull out after that. He sort of keeps on antagonizing the Jewish leadership after this because he brings up the one topic that he knows is going to divide this group of people, the resurrection. I just want to pause for a second though and think about the question that's been asked by the commander, the Roman commander. Why is this guy being accused? Why is Paul being accused by the Jews? Has he got an answer? Not really at all. It almost feels like that hasn't even been addressed. He certainly knows the Jews, Jewish leadership are not, a fans, are not fans of Paul. He knows that. That's obvious. But he has not got an answer to his question. And so by bringing out the resurrection, I don't think Paul is just trying to rile up the Jewish leadership here. No, he's actually also trying to answer the question, in fact, primarily trying to answer the question that the Roman commander had in 22 verse 30. And this is how he answers it. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's what I'm being accused for. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say he's on trial for telling people about the resurrection of the dead. Now, it is the hope itself that he says he's on trial for. What we're meant to notice is that Paul is not on trial for a deed done, but he's on trial for a hope held, which is terrifying. Especially if you're a Christian here today, it's terrifying. Because you believe in the same resurrection that Paul is on trial for. And if ultimately it has nothing to do with what Paul has done and everything to do with the message of that hope of the resurrection, then who is to say that the same can't happen to us? Which is why, like Paul, we need to hear chapter 23, verse 11. The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. God is with Paul in all of this. I stand near you. I've not abandoned you. It is a little bit terrifying knowing that we share the same faith that Paul goes through a whole lot of stuff for, not just in this passage, but in heaps of other areas of his life. At work, in your family, amongst your friends, are you struggling in the face of those that you know because you're a Christian, because of your faith? Are you struggling? I remember when I was a kid, I used to do like swimming lessons, like squad, and um, I wasn't always the most excited to go, especially if I didn't like my coach at the time. And um, so I would be a bit nervous, I wouldn't want to get in the pool, and mum or dad, who would, usually dad who would take me, would say, don't worry, I'm just going to be right here by the side of the pool, and I'll be there when you get out. God stands near you. Take Courage. God doesn't abandon his people in the face of opposition. Jesus promises it himself 
If you take the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel as an example, he promises to be with the disciples to the end of the age. Jesus is with you. Just as he was with Paul back in the first century. And Paul needed it because the opposition now attempt a new tactic to try and get rid of Paul. This we come to our second point. Here we're looking from chapter 23, verse 12 to 35. In this section, we learn of a plot, an oath, and a letter, but we're going to spend most of the time looking at the letter. The plot is to kill Paul. The oath is an expression of commitment to that plot. Uh, Forty people vow that we're not going to eat until Paul is dead. And then the plot is this. They get Paul out in the open. They're going to do it under a false story of wanting more accurate information Again, this question, what is Paul on trial for, even though this time it's used deceptively? And then when he's being taken to the Sanhedrin, these conspirators are going to kill him on the way. That's the plot. Paul finds out about it through his nephew, and then he informs the commander. And then in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 23, it's repeated. We hear the plot again. We hear the the story that's going to be the cover story to lure Paul out. And that... The repetition that the commander wants accurate information, I think, is important. It's used differently here, but it has a similar effect to keep driving the narrative, to keep telling us that is what we've got to be thinking about. What is Paul on trial for? What is he being accused of? Have we actually got to the bottom of it? And then comes the letter, where we get uh, the commander's answer to the question of what is Paul on trial for? What is he being accused of? He writes a letter to Governor Felix. He seems to be on Paul's side. He listens to Paul's nephew. He dispatches soldiers. He devises his own plan to ensure Paul's safety, to go to Caesarea and to go to Felix. Now, there are a few things we see in the letter, but the one I want to focus on is in verse 29, and it's that the commander acknowledges Paul's innocence. Verse 29, chapter 23. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him, against Paul, that deserved death or imprisonment. No charge. The Roman commander claims Paul is innocent. No charge that deserves death or jail. Paul hasn't done anything wrong. Luke, who's the author of Acts, is trying to make it clear that it's not anything Paul has done, but that it's the resurrection that has him on trial again. And now the Roman commander is starting to see it. And it's key to the story. It's key to the story that Paul is innocent, that Paul has not done a deed that that he deserves to be put on trial for. I asked you all just briefly, are you struggling for your faith? Is there some kind of opposition? At this point, the question we need to ask ourselves is, why? Why are we facing that opposition, if you are? Is it your manner? Or is it the message? Are you facing opposition for your manner? Or the message? Is it that you are lovingly and kindly speaking with people about Jesus, that you are just loving them and being kind in general? in normal conversations, that you might even go out of your way to extend love to those in your life. And so all it could possibly be is the message. Or are you copying it because you're a jerk? You're a hypocrite, like me yelling at my colleague. 
Is it your manner or is it the message? Paul knows he is innocent. We know actually from earlier on in Acts, Paul goes to great lengths. He strives to do the right thing by the Jews. He strives for innocence before them. Our lives ought to be innocent ones. Another one of the apostles, Peter, says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Innocence. Strive for it. One other implication I want to draw from this is you don't need to go looking for opposition. You may have heard something said similar to this, that if you aren't facing opposition, if you are not facing opposition, then you are not bold enough in your evangelism, or something along those lines. Can I just say, I actually don't think I buy that. I don't buy it. I want to say persecution is not actually a diagnostic for effective evangelism. It's not. Suffering is not the mark of boldness. You can be bold and evangelize and not suffer. You can suffer and not evangelize or be bold. And the reason I say this, the reason I bring it up is because the danger is that we might self-assess with the wrong metric, the wrong measure. For example, you might say, how, how is my evangelism go, going? Well, am I suffering? Yes, my, my friends pay me out all the time. I must be doing such effective evangelism. Awesome. Ask yourself, am I innocent in my life? And is the resurrection why I'm on trial or why I'm facing opposition? Manner or message? The opposite might be, I'm not suffering. So I must not be evangelizing. And maybe that's the more common one. I'm not suffering, so I mustn't be doing any effective evangelism. Well, well maybe, but also probably not. Maybe not. For you, I think the question is, am I holding out the resurrection? Am, am I holding it out? Despite whether or not there's opposition. The reason Paul goes to Jerusalem is so that they might know. So that they might know the hope of the resurrection. He says earlier on in the book of Acts, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Are you doing that? Is that your aim? You see, I want to suggest that the metric of our mission is ultimately the message. Is it proclaimed? Are you telling people about the hope of the resurrection? That's the measure. Is it happening? Are you bringing them along to, to church or inviting them for things we run at church? We have another explore coming up this term. Bring someone along. The metric is if we are doing it, not, what's, not what we're copying as a result of it. The focus of this passage is that despite his opposition, Paul strives to remain innocent and he strives to keep holding out the message. Not that Paul's message is effective because of his opposition. Make sure your life is innocent. Keep holding out the message and then if you are accused, you will know just like Paul that the true basis of those accusations is the resurrection. 
And that's our final point. We're looking at all of chapter 24 for this final point. Paul is on trial because of the risen Jesus. He's transferred to Caesarea, to Governor Felix. He's passed up the the Roman hierarchy, so to speak. And the Jewish leaders are forced to go there as well to put their case forward. And things kind of get a little bit more legit here, a little bit more legitimate. The Jews themselves, they get themselves a lawyer. His name's Tertullus. That's kind of classic. There's this little guy who has to to defend himself and the big powerful people get to bring in the legal cavalry. Up until this point, though, we haven't really heard the Jewish answer to that question, why is Paul being accused? Well, here it is, chapter 24, they get to lay it down. The lawyer Tertullus starts off with, what at, what at face value kind of sounds like they're just trying to butter up Governor Felix here. Hey, Felix, you've been such a good leader. We love you. Please listen to us. But I actually think that's trivializing too much what this lawyer is doing. He's actually being very clever with his choice of words. He's targeting the areas that will appeal to Felix's ego and directly linked to the accusations that are then going to be brought against Paul. They are trying to make what they are accusing Paul of personal to Felix. Verse 2, chapter 24, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. And jump down to verse 5 with me, and this is what they say of Paul. And this is the Jewish accusation that we've been waiting for. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of a Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him, which is a lie. They didn't seize him. But really, there are three accusations. Paul is a troublemaker. He's a ringleader. And he's a desecrator. He stirs up riots. He's a threat to Felix's... Felix, you've made made everything so peaceful. And this guy's a threat to it. He's a ringleader. This is actually quite a strange word. To be honest, it's only placed in the New Testament that this word is used. But it does appear in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the book of Job. And there it's used to describe a king who is ready to go into battle. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to paint Paul as a political figure who might overthrow Rome, or at least attempt to. And then he's called the desecrator. Desecrated the temple. This one should be kind of familiar as we're reading through Acts in some ways because it's the reason they claim that they started the riot back in chapter 21, verse 28, that he brought a Gentile into part of the temple that the Gentiles weren't allowed, desecrating the temple. These three accusations together, they should be a royal flush in poker. The best hand that anyone could lay down, some of these on their own would be punishable by death. Together, it should be all over for Paul, except that they are all almost completely false. And Paul makes sure Felix knows that. Paul gets on the defense now. Again, he, similarly, he starts his defense by acknowledging Felix, and then he wastes no time getting into it. The people did not find me arguing with anyone or stirring up any crowds. 
and they have no evidence to prove it, Paul says. He does concede a little bit, though. He admits that he follows the same God as the Jews. But, he says, I follow him as one associated with the way. By using that title, he's doing two things. First, he's actually dissociating himself with that title, ringleader, that they used. But he's also acknowledging Jesus. And this is key, because it's kind of the first time Paul, in this section, actually brings Jesus up. And it's a really important distinction that Paul is making. I follow Jesus. And then he immediately brings up the resurrection again. 24 verse 18, Paul says, I was ceremonially clean. He said, there wasn't even a crowd with me that I could stir up. He says, I wasn't involved in any disturbance. My record is clean. I'm innocent. The Jews who actually started all this, they're not even here to present their case. And the ones that are here don't have any genuine charge against me, except maybe this. And this is kind of Paul's mic drop moment. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. This is the reason Paul's on trial. But it presents a big issue for his accusers because it's a little bit different to when he brought it up earlier on in the passage. He's doing two things. He's saying, I'm innocent. These guys have to admit that. All they have to at least admit that the dispute is theological. It's about the Bible. But he's also admitted to being part of the way, which is why it makes it a different statement to what he said earlier on in this passage. Mentioning the resurrection now is on a whole other, another level. Because now we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. Something that the Pharisees cannot agree with Paul on which they did earlier on in the passage. But because Paul doesn't actually mention Jesus' name, the Pharisees are in a little bit of a trap. They can't side with him here because they know he's talking about something different. But they already sided with him earlier. So they have nowhere to go now. He's trapped them. Paul, in his defense, has brought everything together. He shows his innocence and he shows the real issue, the resurrection. But what is the resurrection? The Bible teaches that there are two resurrections. One of them is at the end of history, all people will rise. The unrighteous will rise to condemnation and the righteous will rise to salvation. The Pharisees would, would believe that one. They would hold to that. But the difference between them and Paul is the person of Jesus Christ and where he fits in the picture. You see, the Pharisees believe they can be righteous on their own. Whereas Paul knows he's not, and he needs to cling to Jesus' resurrection, which is the second resurrection that the Bible talks about. The resurrection of the person, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, I want you to hear this. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it does so for two reasons, at least, I think. The first is because if Jesus really rose, then that first resurrection that I just mentioned at the end of history, that's true. 
Why? Because the Bible teaches that Jesus rising from the dead is actually the first resurrection of that final one. And because he rose, he's able to bring all those who trust him into salvation. The second reason that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection is because it is an historical event. One of the distinguishing factors of Christianity from all other religions is that it opens itself up to historical critique. The Bible is an historical source. It makes claims about real events in real times and leaves itself exposed to critique. Come and critique me, you could, you could say. You can go and research it if you want. You can go and check out the historical reliability of the resurrection. For example, most ancient historians agree that Jesus existed as a real person on earth, that he lived, that he taught, that he died by crucifixion, that he was fully dead and not asleep, and that his tomb was empty. And so the big historical question becomes, how did it get empty? Well, 12 eyewitnesses went around preaching for decades afterwards that it was because he actually rose from the dead. Not a resuscitation, but a resurrection. That's what they preached. And none of them denied it, even under the pain of death. If you made up a story, would you hold on to it? 12 different individuals. It would only take one of them to spill or change the story for it to be proven a hoax and none of them did under the pain of death. Look into the historical arguments for the resurrection. They are sound. One historian puts it like this. There is a resurrection-shaped hole in the historical record. And the very fact that Christianity stands or falls on the risen Christ is why Paul is so insistent in basing his whole life and ministry around it. It's the core of the message. It's the source of his hope. It's the map for his life. And it's the reason he's on trial today. Well, not today, but in the first century. See, Jesus being alive, this, this, this idea that Jesus has risen from the grave is so polarizing because it says we will all rise, but some of us to condemnation and some to salvation. But that is the very reason we must take it seriously. Because the risen Jesus is the only thing. He is the only one people can cling to so that they might rise to salvation. He's the only one who can bring them there. Because we've all rejected God. We're wrong if we think like the Pharisees who try to be good enough. We need to recognize we're not good enough. We've all rejected God. And the only way to be saved is by trusting the only one who was perfectly obedient and then who died to take that condemnation, so that he might offer us salvation. Trust in Jesus and his resurrection. And when you rise, one day it will be to salvation. If you're here today and you would call yourself a Christian, what's important is that we never stop, like Paul, holding out. 
the resurrection and salvation in the name of the living Jesus. The passage, actually, in chapter 24, it kind of ends anticlimactically. Paul gets this chance, we're told, about to speak with Felix again and his wife. He, he shares about faith in Jesus. He shares about self-control, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And we're told for two years, Felix kind of just wheels him in and out to talk to him whenever he feels like it and kind of hopes that Paul will pay him a bribe. And then we're just told that Felix is replaced by a guy named Festus and Paul's still in prison. But what I think we get from that little epilogue, it's not really an epilogue, but the end of that passage, is Paul doesn't stop sharing the resurrection. It's actually quite possible that Paul doesn't see a whole lot of other people except Felix and maybe he's kind of inner people. He's just defended himself against false allegations. Nothing's really made of it, but he's probably put in some sort of house arrest for two years and has been wheeled in and out to have a chat with the governor. But he uses the opportunity. I wonder, would that stop you? I mean, maybe something would have stopped you before you could get to this point. But would that stop you? You've just defended yourself from false allegations. It's obvious you're innocent. But you're still in prison. And you're just a conversation partner whenever the governor feels like it. It doesn't stop Paul. What about not seeing anyone become a Christian? One thing that I think is notable that's not in this whole passage is there's no... We're not told, at least, about any kind of conversion. Nobody comes, becomes a Christian. But it doesn't stop Paul. He keeps on sharing. What about possibly losing a friend? They don't want to talk to you anymore. Your family don't want to talk to you anymore because of the resurrection. What would stop you from sharing Jesus? Well, maybe a better question is this. What's going to make you start? What's going to make you start? I want to leave us with two questions. And you can just pick one to think about. The first is this. What will keep me sharing the risen Jesus in the face of everything that will try to stop me? What will keep me doing it? What will keep me sharing the risen Jesus in the face of everything that will try to stop me? Second one. What will make me start sharing the risen Jesus in the face of everything that wants to keep me quiet? What will make me start sharing the risen Jesus in the face of everything that wants to keep me quiet? I'm going to give you the answer to those two questions. Same answer. It's this. The answer is the risen Jesus. See, Jesus is both the center of the message that you hold out and the source of hope you cling to when that becomes tough or terrifying to share it. Why? Because his resurrection is the only hope for salvation. As we said earlier, the risen Jesus is the only hope for salvation. So when you lose friendships, when your family don't want to talk to you, the risen Jesus is the reminder that he can bring you into a new family, an eternal family. The risen Jesus brings us to God the Father, who's waiting with open arms, arms of the one who never leaves you nor forsakes you. When you lose a job, the risen Jesus says, I am bringing you to an eternal kingdom. 
That is a picture of exceeding wealth that's designed by God who can do more than you could ever ask for or imagine. The resurrection is also your signpost to eternal rest. When you're scared to cross the pain line, that scary moment of sharing Jesus with your friend or family, well, the risen Jesus is the reason that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even death. In two days, it will be exactly one year since Marin and I started here at Christchurch. And some of you will know this, probably most of you won't, but coming out of Bible college, I was looking for a youth minister job. I was like, I'm going to be a youth minister. Anyway. Then I got asked to meet... I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) Then I was asked to meet with this senior minister about a mission role, a role where I had to help a church think about how we would share Jesus with those who don't yet know him. That was Dave, our senior minister. Uh, And in that conversation, I think... It might have been one of the first few things I said to Dave, actually. I'd never met him before. I said, look, I don't think I'm the right person for this job. So if you want interview, job interview tactics, come and speak with me. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons that I said that was because as far... This is actually was, this was wrong, but at the time, this is what I thought. As far as I knew, I had not led anyone to Christ. But that was my fear. How can I help a church in sharing Jesus if I haven't done it myself. Yes, I'd shared the gospel. I'd had a lot of chats at work. I remember almost every Friday for a while at my workplace, my boss would say to me, Brayden, he wasn't a Christian, Brayden, what can you teach me about God this week? (laughs) And I'd have to answer with another five guys in the shop, probably not always, but often a lot of whom weren't Christians. But for a time, I didn't think I could do this role. Maybe some of you sitting there thinking, well, we still don't think you could do this role. (laughs) But sharing the risen Jesus, it's scary, right? It's terrifying. It's hard. This year, I've had no's to invites. People say yes and then pull out last minute. Conversations that fall flat, opportunities missed or just wasted. I've shared Jesus and he hasn't been accepted. And miraculously, I've shared Jesus and people have accepted him. But do you know what I've thought about in all the ups and downs of all that, more than anything else? It is the risen Jesus and the hope he provides. Never stop holding on to the risen Jesus. I want his life to be your motivation to live an innocent life. Let the hope of his life be what you cling to when living for him is difficult. And let your living Lord be the joy of your life. That it may motivate you to never stop holding out his resurrection to others. Be people of innocence who never stop holding out the risen Jesus. Join me as I pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you so much that you did rise Jesus from the dead, raise Jesus from the dead. We thank you that he is alive, and that because of that he is our source of hope and can be a source of hope to many who don't yet know him. We pray that you would enable us and help us by your spirit to be people of innocence 
who do strive to live such good lives that though we might be accused, people might come to know you. Father, help us to always hold out the resurrection. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.